Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Welcome the Prophet. It's based upon the lectionary readings for June 28, 2020. The danger in approaching this week's gospel passage is that we'll dismiss it as straightforward. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, Jesus tells his disciples in our reading from Matthew. Whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. It will be easy to walk away from these verses thinking, Sure, no problem. Jesus wants me to be welcoming. Jesus wants my church to give out water bottles. Hey, I'm great at hospitality. Our church donates groceries every week. Been there, done that, Jesus. What's next? But Jesus' message is not that simple. The instructions he gives his disciples in this passage are not about extending welcome. They are about receiving welcome. They're about what it looks like and feels like for followers of Jesus to accept welcome in Jesus' name. More specifically, given the Revised Common Lectionary's wise pairing of this gospel with a fascinating story from the book of Jeremiah, this lesson is about welcoming prophets. It's about the risks and rewards of extending hospitality to God's provocative, discomforting, and truth-telling messengers. If we're willing to take a deeper look at these passages, Here are some things we might notice. We are meant to minister from the margins. I imagine this will come as a surprise to many Christians. The majority of us in the West are not used to occupying the margins. We're used to occupying the center. We're used to being the ones who wield institutional and cultural power over the people we set out to help. We're accustomed to being the privileged ones who benevolently extend welcome, generosity, charity, and hospitality to others less privileged than ourselves. This isn't entirely bad, but it was decidedly not the case in Jesus' day. When Jesus sent his disciples out into the world to share the good news of God's kingdom, he sent them out as vulnerable outsiders. They had no religious institutions to back their efforts no political tools to wield, no cultural capital to spend. They had no power at all, save the power of the Holy Spirit moving through them to heal and serve. Jesus told his first messengers to carry nothing, no money, no food, no extra clothes. He told them to assume a posture of extreme humility and depend wholly on the hospitality of the people they wished to serve. Even the simplest, most basic of their needs the need for a cup of cold water on a sun-scorched afternoon, would have to be met by others. What does this mean for us 21st century Christians? I wonder if it means we need to re-examine our cozy relationship with power and redefine our place in the wide world Jesus loves. Clearly, he thought there was great value in ministering from the margins. He wanted Christian witness to flow from humility and vulnerability, not from complacency and comfort. He wanted his good news to be preached from a place unencumbered and untainted by the temptations and corruptions of human power. He wanted the message of God's saving love to come from dependent outsiders, from the edges of society, not the center. 
I hear a lot of lament these days about the declining influence and authority of the church in Western culture. Certainly, there are legitimate reasons to worry and to grieve. But what if decentering is a good thing for Christianity? What if we need to learn the art of receiving welcome before we can extend it honestly in Christ's name? What if the people we sideline as recipients of our charity are actually meant to be our teachers? The reward is for the small gesture. Jesus tells his disciples that the people who welcome them will be richly rewarded. Notice here that the prize is not only for the keynote speaker, the celebrity prophet, or the charismatic star at the microphone. The prize also goes to the person who serves. It goes to the one who hears the doorbell and opens the door. It goes to the one who hangs up the coats, washes the feet, pours the cool drinks, and sets and clears the table. In other words, the hierarchies we cherish within our religious institutions are not the hierarchies that matter to Jesus. The essential workers aren't always the people we glamorize. Rather, the small gesture and the invisible kindness of what please God, who sees everything we do in secret. What is rewarded is the quiet, unglamorous meeting of basic human need. Why? Because it is in the offering of such simple, essential gifts that God's kingdom announces itself. Jesus came to bring abundant life, and that life begins with the most elemental of gestures. Even a cup of cold water? Yes, even that. We mirror Jesus, whether we plan to or not. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Are we listening? I hope so, because this is a staggering claim. What would happen if we took it seriously, or even literally? How would our behaviors and attitudes change if we believed that other people see Jesus every time they look at us? What would happen to the church and to the world if we operated on the assumption that Jesus is visible in and through us at every moment, in every interaction, in every relationship, encounter, conversation, and conflict? What sense of burden or obligation would we feel in our homes, our marriages, our workplaces, and our extended families? Would we tread more lightly on the earth, speak less and listen more, reconsider our grudges and grievances, Choose our words with greater care. Examine our motivations more closely. What Jesus handed to his disciples when he commissioned them for ministry was his own reputation, his own character, his own standing in the world. What a risk he took and what a responsibility we bear. The goal isn't popularity. In our Old Testament reading this week, two prophets deliver messages to God's people. The year is 594 BCE. The Babylonians have conquered Jerusalem, captured many of its leaders, and carried them into exile. The small band of people who remain in the wrecked city long for the Babylonian oppression to end and their city to be restored to freedom and glory. They long to hear a word of deliverance from God. Along comes the prophet Hananiah. Standing before the priests and the people who have gathered at the temple, he announces that God has broken the power of the Babylonians. The time of exile is over, he says. Everything the people have lost is about to be restored. God has promised his people a quick and easy deliverance, and the time has come for celebration. Needless to say, this is exactly the message the people wish to hear. The hard times are over. 
There's no more struggle to be had. God is going to fix everything. Hananiah's is a message of comfort, reassurance, and triumph. A message of nationalist hope, divine favor, and easy victory. A message to stir the heart and placate the conscience. The only problem is, it's not a message from God. The message from God comes through Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who shows up at the temple wearing a yoke around his shoulders, a literal yoke, symbolizing the bondage inflicted by the Babylonians. Jeremiah condemns Hananiah's prophecy as false and dangerous. You're offering cheap comfort and false hope to God's people, Jeremiah tells the rival prophet. True peace is not nearly so easy, and God's favor is not something human beings should take for granted. Jeremiah then reminds Hananiah that Israel's true prophets, even those from ancient times, have prophesied war, famine, and pestilence. In other words, they have dared to tell God's people hard and holy truths. Hard truths about God's anger, disappointment, and grief. Hard truths about the need for repentance and return. Hard truths about the high cost of justice. Hard truths about patience, long-suffering, and sacrifice. The Babylonian exile will not end quickly, Jeremiah says. God's people will have to wait and pray and surrender and repent. No, Jeremiah can't offer them a pleasant or popular message. He can only offer them the truth. Of course, welcome takes on a whole different meaning when we think about it in light of this Old Testament story. It's easy for the Israelites to welcome smooth-talking Hananiah. It's altogether harder to welcome weird, weepy Jeremiah with the bizarre yoke around his neck. Imagine the risk Jeremiah has to take speaking truths no one wants to hear. What if no one offers him a cup of cold water when he's done prophesying? What if every door in town slams shut at his approach? What's the takeaway for us? I believe it's a call to radical, risky honesty. A call to take our vocation as truth-tellers very seriously. As God's messengers in the world, we are not at liberty to soften the gospel for the sake of our own likability. Jesus has not commissioned us to say whatever is trendy or comfortable or easy or popular. He has commissioned us to say what is true. False hope is not God's hope. Easy peace is not God's peace. And convenient justice is not God's justice. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The implication, of course, is that not everyone will welcome authentic prophets. Not everyone will open the door, receive Christ's message, and offer us the glass of water we hope for. But that does not excuse our inaction. The message is still, go. The message is still, speak. The message is still, carry God's image out into the world and do so with reverence, gentleness, humility, truthfulness, and love. Yes, there is great risk involved. Of course there is. But there is also reward. For books this week, Dan reviews Following Jesus, Finding Our Way Home in an Age of Anxiety by Henry Nouwen. When I found this book at our public library, I thought it had to be a repackaging of some of the earlier works of Henry Nouwen. After all, he died almost 25 years ago and wrote some 40 books. 
but I was wrong. According to Gabrielle Earnshaw, a historian and the founding archivist of the Henry Nouwen Archives, this never-before-published book is based upon six talks that Nouwen gave during Lent at St. Paul Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1985. That was a pivotal year in Nouwen's life. In 1985, Nouwen moved from the world of the best and the brightest to the world of the weak. After professorships at Notre Dame and then Harvard, he made the most important decision of his life. He left Harvard and moved to Toronto, where for the last 11 years of his life, he served as the residential priest at Daybreak, a home for people with severe physical and mental disabilities that was founded by Jean Venier. After 25 years in the priesthood, Nowen recounts that as he was turning 50, he began to experience a deep inner threat. He was praying poorly, living in isolation from others, preoccupied with being relevant, and sensing that his success in academia had placed his soul in peril. Quote, I woke up one day with the realization that I was living in a very dark place, and that the term burnout was a convenient psychological translation for spiritual death. Living among the weak and suddenly faced with my naked self was a starting point for Nowen to discover his true identity as a child loved by God. Quote, These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of my relevant self, the self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, and forced me to claim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love, regardless of any accomplishments. So the themes of this new but old book about following Jesus in an age of anxiety were not just theoretical for Nowen when he wrote and delivered them at St. Paul. It was the life he was living. The format of the book is quite simple. Each chapter begins with a passage from scripture, proceeds with an exposition of the biblical material, and then concludes with a prayer. Nowen's prose is simple to a fault. There is very little autobiographical material in these talks, or mention of current events, historical figures, critical questions, or other authors. Just a simple trust in the power of the Jesus story. Part of what endeared Nowen to so many people was how he wore his heart on his sleeve. He believed that what is most personal might be the more universal. In this book, for example, he writes, quote, When I think about how I live my life and how others live theirs, I am amazed by how enormously needy I am. I am in need of affection. I am in need of attention. I am in need of affirmation. I am in need of praise. I am in need of influence, power, and success. I sense how strong these needs are in me and how strong they are in others. Nor is this rhetorical exaggeration as a biography of Henry Nouwen by Michael Ford makes clear. But after having embraced his own neediness, fears, and wounds, he encourages us to accept that we are accepted by him whose love never fails. For films this week, Dan reviews Where's My Roy Cohn? The brilliant American lawyer, Roy Cohen, was a man of many contradictions and hypocrisies. Born into an observant Jewish family in New York City, After graduating from Columbia Law School at the age of 20, he became famous for the conviction and execution of the accused spies Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. He was the lead counsel for Senator Joseph McCarthy. He outed gays in the American government and military, even though he himself 
was a closeted gay man. He was the go-to attorney for mafia dons, Donald Trump and Rupert Murdoch. Flamboyant, combative, unapologetic, and ruthless, Cohen took pride in being a power broker without scruples. He was a profligate liar and the quintessential bully. Sound familiar? The title of this documentary comes from 2017, when President Trump raged against his Attorney General Jeff Sessions for recusing himself and thus failing to protect him from the investigation by Robert Mueller. Where's my Roy Cohen? If the director, Matt Tiernauer, has any message in this dark and depressing story, it seems to be that although Cohen died of AIDS in 1986, his ghost remains alive and well today. Or, that what we are experiencing today with Trump is nothing new. And finally, for poetry this week, Hope by Philip Booth. Old spirit in and beyond me, keep and extend me. Amid strangers, friends, great trees and big seas breaking, let love move me. Let me hear the whole music, see clear, reach deep. Open me to find due words that I may shape them to plowshares of my own making. After such luck, however late, give me to give to the oldest dance, then to good sleep, and, if it happens, glad waking. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for April 28th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.